0: there, internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since
1: 1986. Today's fact, poetry is good actually?
2: I'm the one arguing this one.
1: That's what we're going with I guess. Yeah we're taking Mackenzie's word for that one. (laughs) Y'all
0: remember the extremely cathartic James Joyce episode? This is kind of more of that.
2: Yeah, it's kind of more of that, me discussing why people tend to think poetry's bad. We're recording
0: this one pretty far in advance, more so than our usual recordings, because we're doing some hiatus stuff while kid is moving, and we'll be unable to do things like podcasts for a while.
2: Yeah, so right now it's February 28th. This should be released per the calendar that Annie and I worked out by June 13th.
0: Oh, you're putting numbers on this. Don't do that. That spoils the magic.
2: Anyway, it was recorded way far in advance, folks.
0: We just figured, what's a topic that we can just sort of spin our wheels about without really any provocation? And, well, Mackenzie, it's poetry, because we've talked in the past about how we're all English majors of some stripe. You were actually the one that focused on poetry in your undergrad.
2: Yeah, I focused on poetry. I focused on particularly 15th to 17th century poetry. You couldn't probably tell that from what I'm going to discuss in this episode, except for maybe the end. But those are my favorites. I like poetry. You just like it. When I was really little, my dad bought me a baby's book of poetry it was really big but it had like a lot of really good poems in it and then of course i got into shell silverstein but i don't know if it really snapped until i was like in seventh grade and i had ms jones as my teacher and we had to do like a random report on anything we wanted that's too much for me (laughs) anything i wanted i was a ton of things i wanted to do a report on in english class in seventh grade that's some choice paralysis there. So Ms. Jones said, how about you try Holy Sonnet 10 by John Dunn, who's a 16th century poet. So I did and fell in love. And then I was on English team all of high school. And I was often the poet expert on the English team.
0: Like an academic bowl?
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's a one of our academic teams. There were different ones for each basically topic. So there was like social studies team, history team, math team. We would travel to the other schools around the area and compete.
0: And you were the poetry expert.
2: I was the poetry expert.
0: You're the poetry guy on the heist team. Yeah, I
2: also became interdisciplinary captain because I would know about the history behind the poetry. <laughs> Since they all focused on specific areas, I became very good at those specific areas.
0: I would believe Mackenzie having a broad approximate knowledge of many things.
2: That was my intro to poetry, if you will.
0: For me, it was like I read a lot of the Shel Silverstein as a kid because, of course, it's Shel Silverstein.
2: Of course, uh, Shel Silverstein so good.
0: One of these scholastic book fair pamphlet things that you filled out every so often, usually to get the new Animorphs book. Uh, One of them was a child's anthology of poetry that was really not really a child's anthology of poetry so much it was just an anthology of poetry that didn't mention like cuss words or sex in it but like it actually had a pretty broad swath of poets i actually still have that copy i brought it with me over to washington
2: that might actually be the same thing my dad bought me because i think mine's called the children's does it have an owl
0: yeah an owl on the cover yeah that's it yeah
2: oh my gosh yes but the inside does say two McKinsey love dad, so I got that one going for me.
0: So I don't have that particular edition, no. That collection's like really, really good. Yeah. And then also, you know, I got into high school and then I learned that poetry didn't have to rhyme, so rhyming poetry was stupid. <laughs> and then I wrote angsty teen poetry. Oh boy, who Oh boy.
2: I did that too.
0: I don't think I kept much of it.
2: I kept all of mine, baby. <laughs>
0: Mostly that I just don't think I wrote that much angsty teen poetry. It was mostly just angsty teen drawings and like half-hearted diary entries.
2: Honestly, my favorite is one I wrote when I was like in second grade.
1: (laughs) Second grade?
2: Yeah, there was like a poem I wrote in second grade.
1: Seven-year-old Mackenzie had a lot
2: of existential angst.
0: Well, yeah, seven-year-old Mackenzie had an elaborate imaginary friend named Rufus who said it extremely threatening.
2: So it's not actually, it's not angsty. It was called Happy
0: Halloween. Gee, in second grade, I was just writing Mr. Popper's Penguin's sequel thick.
2: I witnessed the screenshot.
0: Marvin the Ghost? <laughs> Is this spacing on purpose?
2: Look, read what it says.
0: Oh, I see. It's a, wow. Okay, so you combine like the kind of poem where you <laughs> spell out words... Yes. That all the first letters like spell out something by themselves. Yeah. Except you added an
2: A-A-B-B. And also being in second grade, I only did happy and then I ran out of stuff for Halloween. <laughs> so I just kind of gave up there. Honestly, you use a lot in here. Yeah. Hello, witches, goblins, and Marvin the ghost. I'd like to present to you. Hold on. Host. Hold on. Got one it. sec.
0: It's an acrostic that uses an A-B scheme. An A-A-B-B. <laughs> so does that make it a? Have
2: <gasps> yes, I think it does! Can you pinch your husband?
0: Goodbye!
2: <laughs> that
0: was good, Lucas, I hope you got that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really enchanted with Marvin the Ghost. All the other ghosts can go to hell, except Marvin. Marvin. Marvin's cool.
2: Hello, witches, goblins, and Marvin the Ghost. I'd like to present to you your host, for you know on Halloween night, we all shiver under our covers with fright. And now, may I present... Alexis Festafine Georgia Hugh, who has come to help every single one of you. She lives down in the small town of Shan. She can scare better than anyone can. That's basically the start of my poem.
0: You know, honestly, I feel like there's definitely a Shell Silverstein influence in here, but I see more of the meter stylings of Dr. Seuss here.
2: Kind of, yeah. Good job, second grade Mackenzie.
0: Honestly, way better than anything I was putting out.
2: I really liked doing dumb poetry things.
0: This is adorable. I'm so happy about this. Can we put this on the social medias? Yeah, of course. Perfect. Somewhere along the line, I just ended up getting to be a real stickler about meter in poetry.
2: That's fair. I did that for a little while too. That's
0: why Fleeting is the best possible mini-game that they could have ever put in an Assassin's Creed game. <laughs> Viking rap battles. Viking rap battles where meter is important.
2: <laughs> someday I'll get to play a and It'll be someday.
1: Kit, did you ever get into much poetry as a kid? I like Beowulf. That's all I got.
2: (laughs) Mm. That's a good poem.
1: Really? Beowulf? Yeah. That's it. Yep. I had a copy of Where the Sidewalk Ends, but I was scared of the photo on the back.
2: That's fair.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, that's fine. Shel Silverstein
0: is actually terrifying.
2: That scares a lot of people.
0: There are recordings of Shel Silverstein reading, what is it, like, Little Miss Susia Stout Would Not Take the Garbage Out, and it's,
1: he actually sounds terrifying when he's reading poetry, too. (laughs) He does. (laughs) I also like that episode of TNG where Data's staring at an empty screen, and when Geordi asks him what he's doing, it turns out he's actually reading a poem, but the poem in question has large periods of emptiness where you're supposed to contemplate the emptiness. That sounds like poetry.
2: (laughs) That's actually a poetry thing.
0: I would also like to put it on record that Data's poetry about his cat is actually really, really
2: good.
1: Yeah, Data's poem about his cat slaps, and the rest of the crew was just mean.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've never listened to it, but I'm going to assume yes.
1: You'll have to read it sometime. The word
0: choice, meter, and diction is like just technically excellent. And it's also about a kitty cat.
2: That makes everything better. I
0: know. We could probably look it up. I do want to just have that on hand right now. One second.
1: Yep. It's on memory alpha in its entirety. Yeah. It's called
0: Ode to Spot. Yeah. I do think it is technically an ode
2: your taxonomic nomenclature, an endothermic quadruped, a carnivorous by nature. Ooh, this is really good.
0: I know! Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skills and natural defenses. Listen to that! It's
2: great! And it just all kind of flows together and w- it's just so technically good! And frankly,
0: the use of the incredibly large vocabulary is really, really good because it actually works that in
2: with the meter. Yeah. The beats are all there where they need to be. And they've got the right rhythm for each other. That's really good! I know! I am here to tell you all why you think poetry is bad okay there are a couple of reasons for why you think poetry is bad first off it tends to be number one it feels like it's an old and dead art form and that's because teachers whenever they teach it especially during like high school and college too actually they tend to focus a lot on the 18th and 17th century and they don't really explain it well i try to remember all the poems i was taught before college and i can remember only up to like the 1950s i was never taught any modern things No one puts it into context. People don't say this was written about a war or this is what the author was going through at that time. That can help a lot too, especially we're going to refer to some of that later when we discuss some poems that I think people will like. Everybody knows Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, I think. Do you both know it? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That one was written in 1951 and the guy had just basically gotten back from dealing with all the war shit going on and his dad was dying before he had a chance to really hang out with him. For a long time, mm. but no one really puts anything into context. Also, as Kit noted earlier, Beowulf is a poem, and a lot of the time, a lot of my teachers never really noted that they were poems. They would call them sagas, and but sagas were poetry. Also,
0: like large chunks of Beowulf are just sort of missing.
2: Yeah, there's more poetry than just Beowulf. There's the Iliad, the Odyssey, Brenwin and Benedict the Vedas are all poetry. Gilgamesh is poetry.
0: Is Chaucer, was that poetry?
2: Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Poetry about farting. Yeah. Basically everything was poetry until literature came along.
0: <laughs> until that fuck walked up.
2: Yeah. Teachers don't really talk about it. They're just like, it's all literature. And technically, yes. The Same way a square, a rectangle, and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera
0: a square is a rectangle but a rectangle Rectangle is not a square square.
2: yeah that one okay so poetry is literature but literature is not poetry on top of that you tend to get taught the same poems over and over so you'll get taught like frost two roads diverged I had to memorize that poem and we were taught it in sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade ninth grade eleventh grade twelfth grade and then I was taught it again in a freshman English class during college good old frost And I was taught again to give off the Raven. I was taught again to do not go gentle. Tiger, 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 tiger's on there. Don't you worry, Blake's on there. Ozymandias. Ozymandias was on there. Occasionally, there'd be someone popping in like, "Oh, we need a girl or a black person. Throw in some Langdon Hughes or some Browning. Dickinson. Dickinson. All of her yellow rose of Texas poems. All of Shakespeare. Occasionally, you might get a haiku by Basho. You just got kind of told the same poems over and over, so you'd get bored. I got bored.
0: I'm noticing they're also predominantly old white men.
2: Yeah, they're all old white guys. Another reason that people think poetry's boring is because it's considered kind of elitist and snooty. There's lots of people to blame for that, but there's a guy who I particularly hate who caused a lot of it. Hmm. A lot of modernism, so you know that thing that James Joyce liked, was helmed by a poet by the name of Ezra Pound, who I f***ing hate. <laughs> When I talk about this guy, you might think that, oh, he died in, like, the 50s or something. No, this guy was alive until, like, the mid-70s.
0: Now, refresher on the specific definition of modernism that we're using here, if you wouldn't mind.
2: Specific definition of modernism that we're using is all about, like, being in the head. It's all about stream of consciousness. It's all about evoking feelings, strong feelings of disgust or joy or or anything like that in the reader.
0: None of that describing nature or events
2: None of that of distantly describing nature. You want to live the nature so the person can feel it. Okay. Ezra Pound is literally the biggest giant head fuckwad on the planet. <laughs> he was close friends with James Joyce, and that should tell you all you need to know about him. He's an anti-Semite. He was racist. He was fascist. Fascist? Fascist, that word. He literally supported Hitler. Oh, cool. He called him a misunderstood saint, much like Jean d'Arc. Wow. Wow, 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 actually. Yeah, he literally was close friends with Mussolini. He literally constantly wrote exposés and ran a radio show celebrating them. Cool, it sounds like a great dude. That's Ezra Pound for you. And before I get any further, I, I have a disclaimer here because I figure there might be some face in our comments being like, but Mac, he hung out with Ginsburg, who was Jewish, and told him explicitly that anti-demitism was the most foolish mistake he made in the years leading up to the end of his life. He was a one. He's basically the white guy who is like, oh, I don't worry, person of color. I think racism sucks. I denounce it. And then he would turn around and put on his Ku Klux Klan hood and just like say everybody else was subhuman but him. That was Ezra Pound here.
0: Sounds like a great guy to influence a movement of
2: artistic expression. And then you add in the fact that he was the editor and ran a lot of literary journals around the turn of the 20th century. And so every basically modern writer we have had to go through him.
0: So they all had to appeal to his particular sensibilities, which were mm, not great.
2: Exactly. And if they wanted to be published, they had to agree with whatever sensibilities were. And Ezra believed that poetry and literature should be hard to understand and indecipherable because it could only be for the select few who were all erudite. Who would think that a Nazi would think that? Ooh. <laughs> okay, so f- that guy. F- that guy. He wanted plebs to keep their grubby hands off of literature because he thought they ruined it. And that was Ezra Pound. I f***ing hate him. (laughs) Okay. A ton of people that you know, including T.S. Eliot and Joyce, who we've discussed before, but also like Hemingway, Frosty, E. Cummins, Marianne Moore, basically anybody who you know who is even remotely modern had to go through this quad to get published. He's kind of like how Reagan caused every modern day problem in America, Ezra Pound caused every modern day problem in poetry.
0: My God. So you're telling me that all the Ivory Tower people are, and now I am old, so forgive me. They were Ezra Pound simps? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) You are correct! Excellent. They were all Ezra Pound simps. I used it properly in a sentence.
2: I could go on and on about Ezra Pound. I am going to go on and on a little bit more about Ezra Pound, because I f***ing hate this guy. Great. The best example of Pound's beliefs are actually in his own poems, called The Cantos. My rage for The Cantos is incoherent, so I'm going to actually pull out some Wikipedia here. Now, canto is just a, a type of, of literature. It's a type of poem. So he just wrote a whole bunch of those. <laughs> yeah, he did. I want to read to you what Wikipedia says about these cantos. Okay. The Cantos by Ezra Pound is a long, incomplete poem in 116 sections, each of which is a canto. It is a book-length work widely considered to be an intense and challenging read. As in Pound's prose writing, the themes of economics, governance, and culture are integral to the work's content. The most striking feature of the text to a casual browser is the inclusion of Chinese characters as well as quotations in European languages other than English. A close reader will normally require a scholarly commentary or use of an encyclopedia to help understand the text. The range of allusion to historical events is broad and abrupt, and changes occur with little transition. There's also wide geographical reference. Pound added to his earlier interest in the classical Mediterranean culture and East Asia selective topics from medieval and early modern Italy and province and the beginnings of the United States, England of the 17th century, and details from Africa he had obtained from Leo Frobenius. Mm. Many references in the text lack explanation.
0: You can't see this because this is an audio
2: medium, but I've been making jerk-off motions in the air for the last 30 seconds. (laughs) That's a good thing to do. Too long to read, that basically means if you're a casual viewer, you'll notice things are in other languages sometimes. But if you want a deep understanding, you need an encyclopedia for each f***ing line. To kind of prove my point further, I've taken a selection from Canto 2. Okay. I'm only going to read 11 lines, and then I want us to discuss those 11 lines. (laughs) okay so we need to brace
0: ourselves for psychic damage is what you're saying
2: brace yourself for psychic damage and brace yourself for hating the world i read this to a friend once and they replied to me with i hate poetry now and i said you're welcome hang it all robert browning there can be but one sordello but sordello and my sordello lor sordell's Sifo for di so shoe churned in the sea seal spots in the spray widened clouds of cliff wash Sleek head, daughter of Lear, eyes of Picasso, under black fur hood, life, daughter of Ocean, and the wave runs in the beach grove. Eleanor, Eleanofs, Eleptolis. There's 11 lights. That was it? Uh, that's all we're reading.
1: So my brain is saying that Robert Browning is either the Victorian poet or the guy who made the rifle and I can't remember which it's the poet okay eyes uh,
2: picasso basically he's the guy who writes a fanfic and then puts every modern reference he can in
0: like virgil did in that part of dante's inferno when all of his favorite
2: historical figures came out and congratulated him yes actually yes so hang it all robert Browning does refer to the poet because he also wrote the book sordello who treats sordello as a dramatic mask for the author and so he's trying to say that he will have a dramatic mask in his story. So he's hanging it all on Robert Browning's interpretation. Then he references three different Sordellos. First, the one from Robert Browning's work, but then also one that was in a Renaissance painting. And then also one that was in a different work by a different author who also referenced Robert Browning's Sordello. It's unknown if he like means himself or actually referencing Sordello at this point because he just focused on Sordello so much. Les Sordelles Sifo di Montovana is a place... That's Sordello. And so he's trying to say that he is not a person but a place in this poem. So Shu Turn the Sea is a reference to a Chinese figure who didn't exist. But again, he's a racist fuckwad. So he's like, all Chinese names sound like So Shu. And also it's kind of like a vague reference to Japan because he also couldn't tell the difference between Japanese and Chinese. Because again, racist. Daughters of Lear is a double play because it's a play on... King Lear, but it's also the Celtic God of the Sea Lear. Isaac Picasso, because he changed the shape of everything he sees. So he's trying to say that he's like Robert Browning and that he's Sordello wearing the mask, but he's changing the shape like Picasso. And at the end, you heard a bunch of Greek. Eleanor, Eleonofs, Eleptolis. Eleanor is Eleanor of Aquitaine and he's then calling her ship destroying, city destroying, like Helen of Troy. You may notice that none of this ties together. So this feels like the
0: equivalent of sitting in a room with two super awful geek guys who don't really have any conversational skills, but they're just sort of trying to out-reference the other one and yeah. prove that they are the one who's into the most memes.
2: Yeah, exactly. No, that's Ezra Pound. And just make it about poetry and literature. Woof. Yeah.
1: So reading it is the equivalent of of going, oh, so I'm just supposed to memorize all your little pictures before I can have a conversation with you?
2: Yes. Yeah. Woof. Yep. That's Ezra Pound. He is the worst. He f***ed up poetry. And he is the f***ing worst. I'm just going to keep repeating that. And the
0: whole book is like
2: that? That is all 116 cantos.
0: They're all like that. They're all just strings of references yeah slung together that also say it's pretty obscure you've probably never heard of it
2: exactly yes that's ezra pound's whole work
0: he just wanted all poetry to be incredibly obtuse unless you had read seven other volumes of referential work he
2: wanted all poetry to be only for the elite
0: but the elite sound like they also suck
2: yeah exactly i hate him he's the worst i think i hate this man welcome to Ezra Pound being the worst. I'm glad more people can join this club because I've just been over here by myself for a while.
0: Wow, just, I have so many opinions bubbling to the forefront about the accessibility of art and expression.
2: Read poetry, kids. It fights Nazism.
0: But not Ezra Pound's poetry.
2: Don't read Ezra Pound's poetry. (laughs) Unless you want to hate read it just so you can spitefully complain about it like I do. Or you can leave that to me. You don't have to do it.
0: I think I'll leave it to you, honestly, if that's fine.
2: I already hold this mantle. Okay. It's already on my back. I got it.
0: So Ezra Pound can go to hell.
2: Yeah, he caused a lot of the problems. And because he was prominent in like the 50s and tons of his poets had influence at that time, boomers, people tended to pick up on how he wanted things taught, which was make it as elite and snooty as possible. And that's kind of held through to this day. And it also gets around another problem with poetry is people tend to get focused on trying to understand it. When poetry is all a medium about experiencing, Basically, uh, other than Ezra Pounds, work, let's not look about that. But you're supposed to just kind of be able to sit back and kind of feel it and understand it. I mean, you can also analyze it. I love f***ing analyzing poetry, man. That's one of my favorite things in the world. But it's not for everybody. And it tends to turn off a lot of people who don't like how you can look at different things and who don't necessarily care about that, really. So how could one enjoy a poem? Honestly, step one, don't try to analyze it. Just kind of read it. Ignore the enjambments, which is like the end of lines, because a lot of people put major emphasis on them, and they are important, but if you just kind of ignore them and kind of keep reading, it helps. What would be
0: an enjambment that people would be able to recognize from, like, a poem they probably heard?
2: So, once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, enjambment, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, enjambment. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping. It's basically where a line ends and goes to the next one.
0: Okay, so it's like the end of like a stanza?
2: It's the end of any line of poetry. Oh, okay. So an enjambment is where you hit enter after you type a line. And they are important often for rhyme schemes. They aren't important necessarily for reading. Okay. When reading, don't be afraid. to Just kind of blow through it as if you're reading a paragraph. That can actually help a lot with understanding. If you like songs, maybe look up somebody reading a poem you're trying to read. Because if somebody reads it, it might help your understanding better. I know that helps me a lot.
0: Sort of in the same way where you can hear Shakespeare out loud and suddenly the context makes a lot more sense than reading it on paper.
2: Exactly. If you're reading it on paper, you might just be caught up in all the like old-timey terms that you don't totally get. But if someone reads it aloud, especially if they're reading it in like the Old English, look that up online. It suddenly just makes perfect sense. If you prefer... You don't necessarily have to like poetry is another thing. But I strongly suggest that people give it a go because you might have dismissed it all because of high school or something like that. It might just be better now. And to prove it, I'm going to read some poems. Okay. I'm going to start with one of my favorite poems. It's called Love Song, I and Thou. It is, in fact, by an old white guy, but it's, it's good. We won't hold on against him. He visited our college once and I loved the poem when he read it because I went to poetry readings in college. That's the kind of person I am, folks. <laughs> this is called Love Song, I and Thou, and it's by Alan Dugan. Nothing is plum, level, or square. The studs are bowed, the joists are shaky by nature. No piece fits any other piece without a gap or pinch, and bit nails dance all over the surfacing like maggots. By Christ, I am no carpenter. I built the roof for myself, the walls for myself, the floors for myself, and got hung up in it myself. I danced with a purple thumb at this housewarming, drunk with my prime whiskey. Rage. Oh, I spat rageous nails into a frame-up of my work it held. It settled, plumb, level, solid, square, and true for that great moment. Then it screamed and went on through, skewing as wrong the other way. God damned it! This is hell, but I planned it, I sawed it, I nailed it, and I will live in it until it kills me. I can nail my left palm to the left-hand piece, but I can't do everything myself. I need a hand to nail the right, a help, a love, a you, a wife. Next poem. That's nice. I love listening to him read it himself because he's just like this Brooklyn guy with a very Brooklyn accent. And so he's like, nothing is plum level or square. And I love it. <laughs> it's just a poem about a guy who basically built a f***ed up metaphorical house for himself. And he's struggling to live in it and he's struggling to fix it. And things keep going wrong as he keeps trying to fix it. and And also be crucified upon it. He's martyring himself. Because he fucked up his life. And so, like, all of his family's crucifying him for it. And he needs someone who can help him deal with being crucified by being there with him. A love. A wife. And I like it. I like the description. I like being able to yell, God damned it, in the middle of a poem. (laughs) It's very simple. That's all it needs to be. The
0: rage built in there does sound like most home renovation projects I've undertaken.
2: Yeah. My next poem is going to be Looking Out to Sea, Warmed by Spring Air by Hai Z. Not an old white guy. In fact, a very young Chinese man. Looking out to sea, warmed by the spring air. Starting tomorrow, I'll be carefree and happy. Roaming the world, feeding my horse, chopping firewood. Starting tomorrow, I'll need nothing but rice and a few vegetables. In my house by the sea, warmed by the spring air. Starting tomorrow... I will write all my loved ones to tell them of my happiness, of how happiness struck me like a lightning bolt. I will tell that to each of them. I want to rename all the rivers and mountains, bring happiness to all strangers. May they all have a brilliant future. May all lovers find a way to be together, and everyone find happiness in their time on earth. All I want to do is look out to sea, warmed by spring air.
0: Now, is that something that's been translated or...
2: That's been translated because it was originally written in Chinese. This is where I want to talk about how people need to put things into context. Haizi wrote this a week before he killed himself. Oh. And he was in the deep dredges of depression when writing this. Starting tomorrow, I'll be carefree and happy. Oh. Roaming the world, feeding my horse, chopping firewood. So it it kind of starts out as like this boring poem we're starting tomorrow I'll be happy I'll do this and this and this but then you add in that and suddenly it has a whole other meaning where it's the sky in the depths of the depression trying to be like no tomorrow I'm going to be happy tomorrow I'm going to be happy and it didn't work
1: also people who've decided to kill themselves reach a kind of peace yeah Yeah. they actually from the outside appear to get better yeah because they've made a decision they've come to a decision they've realized they have the solution or they think they've realized they have the solution
2: yeah and so it Brings a lot of peace to them. I think that context adds a lot to this particular poem.
1: The writing the letters in particular read very much as the suicide note.
2: Yeah. Mm. I want to bring happiness to all strangers. May they all have a brilliant future. God, that one hit like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And that is what a poem's supposed to do. (laughs) The next one, I want to talk about references that are good, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we've talked about Pound's sh**ty references. Right. Do you know anything about Ugolino? Ugol what? Ugolino. He's from the Divine Comedy. He's also a historical figure, but you know.
0: No, honestly, I remember so little of Dante's Inferno. It was taught in a really crappy class where we also covered some Arthurian mythos and she didn't even know that there was a difference between the
2: sword and the stone Excalibur. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk a little about Ugolino before we get into this poem then. He's an Italian nobleman. He is featured prominently in the Divine Comedy. Basically, after a lot of politics, I'm not going to get into study your history, folks. It is also whack. He became the most powerful guy. History is whack. Mackenzie Weaver. Ugolino became the most powerful guy in the city of Pisa, which pissed off the Pope, who then locked him and his sons up in prison and left on to starve to death. And it was said that when the cell was finally opened months later, you could see that Ugolino had eaten some of his children. So Dante, in the Divine Comedy, puts Ugolino in the second lowest hell circle, which is there for traitors, and had him there, actually, with the Pope that locked him up. And so Ugolino is eternally trapped in eating the flesh of said Pope. Ugolino, in the Divine Comedy, tells the story of what happened. Father, our pain, they said, will lessen if you eat us, as you are the one who clothed us with this wretched flesh. We plead for you to be the one who strips it away. That is to say, uh, you brought us into this world and made us experience this fucking pain, Please take us out of this world so we can stop feeling it. Ugolino then goes on to say, and look, I'm going to straight up admit, I'm reading Wikipedia right now.
0: Mackenzie, no one here is doubting your credentials.
2: Thank you. So Ugolino then goes on to say, and I, already going blind, groped over my brood, calling to them, though I had watched them die for two long days, and then the hunger had more power than even sorrow over me. So... Hunger proved stronger than grief has become kind of like a common phrase in literary circles, which kind of has two alternate interpretations. There is literally that hunger becomes stronger than grief in that hunger drives you to a point where you no longer are sad about something and you'll just eat whatever is in front of you, like your children. As you do. Or it could be that starvation finally kills you when grief will not and you kind of want grief to kill you. So those are kind of the two interpretations of it. So it's with that in mind that I turn to the next poem I wanted to read to you guys called Concerting Cuttlefish and Ugolino Mm. by Tracy Brimhall, a lady. You are not surprised when I tell you a spotted hyena at the zoo is killing itself, gnawed from paw to knee, and no one can figure out why it wants to destroy itself. You tell me you found a coyote's leg in a spring trap once. You knew that an animal in its wildness would chew through its tendons, snap its own bones there are parts of ourselves we can learn to live without. You tell me about a woman you saw today, a despair you recognized through her veil, and you wondered why, in grief, it's necessary to hide your face, if death leaves its teeth marks on our cheeks. I wonder if hunger is stronger than grief, and tell you that if a cuttlefish is starving it will eat one of its three hearts. And I wonder if, after they offered their bodies to their father, Ugolino's sons cried as they crawled around him in the dark, If, before he took his hand away from his mouth and strangled them, he studied them, deciding if teeth were strong enough to eat through the red fever of the body. When I look at you, I know you're right. What matters is what's left of us.
0: Yeah.
2: So taking the whole Ugolino metaphor, but turning it into animals. Turning it into actually grief-eating at us. Turning it into that whole feeling of missing something and not being able to grasp it.
1: Huh. That last line to me kind of suggested mutilate yourself however you need to to survive.
2: Yeah, I love it. I love that she could use a reference without having to be a f***ing snot about it. (laughs) 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 If you didn't know that reference, you would have been fine because, you know, you have the hyena and you have the cuttlefish eating one of its own hearts.
0: And it's interesting that she actually chooses those two animals to discuss it, because those are also animals that have been shown to naturally have, like, coping mechanisms for lacks of things within their particular environments or
2: societies. Yeah, I like that it references us. You gotta do what you gotta do to survive. What matters is what's left. Coddlefish. Coddlefish. I was going to do Why I Haven't Told You Yet by Emmy Mahmood, but it's one that we'd have to watch.
1: Oh, I watched Uh, that
0: one last uh, night.
2: You watched that one. Did you watch it, Annie?
0: I didn't watch any of them. I'm sorry. How dare you? Let me link it to you real quick.
2: That was very f***ing good. Well, yeah. That one I mostly included because I feel like it kind of demonstrates my point of if you listen to somebody read their own poem, it's way better than if you just read it sometimes.
0: It's definitely a thing because when you read poetry, you often have this sort of voice in the back of your head. The art voice that is reading things that is always very meditative and...
2: The Ezra Pound voice, if you will.
0: Yeah, the Ezra Pound voice that is meditative and quiet and thoughtful and erudite. And it misses the point that this is art written by people with feelings wanting to express these feelings and emotions.
2: And just so people know, I will probably be posting all of these links to things, both on our Patreon, but also I'll pop them on Twitter whenever the relevant time comes out. Yeah, that would be super. But I like her wordplay. I like how she doesn't mind calling people out to the guy. I like, wake the fuck up. I'm standing here all morning. Do brilliant. And you're basically fucking not noticing. And honestly, of course, there's the great line. He once said I'm cute when I'm angry. Well, I'm about to look phenomenal. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) Mwah. All of
0: the best poetry that I have ever heard recited or performed, because, you know, I went to some poetry readings in college, too, when I was trying stuff out, didn't end up being a poetry person. But pretty much all of them have been by marginalized genders, by people of color, by people who are so far outside of that Ezra Pound box that you suddenly realize, oh, wait, these things can actually be good.
2: Yeah, this also explains why in television, they'll often show like poetry readings as this really boring, stupid things. And to be fair, they can occasionally be, especially if you let a white guy get up there.
0: And also you've got so many television writers who are still really, really into that one idea presented in like the 70s of the beatnik poet yeah where it's weird and obtuse and everyone snaps and yeah then you invite freddie prince jr up on stage and he talks about hacky sack as an extended metaphor for not really having a place <laughs> with his family <laughs>
1: yeah so many tv writers have read nothing and gotten
2: all of their information about the world from tv
0: yeah and it's always like layers and layers of generational ideas and gestures
2: and the beat poetry thing was also by Ginsberg, who also had to go for Pound. And, and, and. <sighs> Pound. I fucking hate him. It's just a recurring <laughs> thing about me hating Ezra Pound. Let's do a sonnet. Okay. I like sonnets. So everybody knows sonnets. They're what Shakespeare did a thousand of. But this is The Illiterate by William Meredith. Touching your goodness, I am like a man who turns a letter over in his hand. And you might think this was because the hand was unfamiliar, but truth is the man has never had a letter before. And now he is both afraid of what it means and ashamed because he has no other means to find out what it says than to ask someone. His uncle could have left the farm to him, or his parents died before he sent them word, or the dark girl changed and want him for beloved. Afraid and letter-proud, he keeps it with him. What would you call his feeling for the words that keep him rich and orphaned and beloved? Hmm. So this is an extended metaphor poem. It talks about touching someone having a particular emotion where he loves and wants this person but he's not sure how they feel without asking them so he references someone who can't read getting a letter in the mail and not knowing why they would receive a letter in the mail could it be that his parents have died could it be that he finally gets the love letter he's been waiting for? Could it be that he just inherited a ton of money from a rich uncle on a farm somewhere? <laughs> but he doesn't know. It could be any of these things. It's Schrodinger's letter. So he's got this feeling in his head of both elation, but fear that it's not going to be what he wants it to be. The whole poem is him reaching out to touch somebody, loving this person, but he doesn't know how they feel back. They're Schrodinger's emotion. <laughs> so he has to ask, but... What is that emotion before you ask, in the moment before you ask that question, before you know how this other person feels, where you're not sure how they're going to respond?
0: The hesitation and the infinite potential.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I love this poem because it kind of embraces that one singular moment before it all culminates into either despair or ecstasy. I do like that. Yeah. These are all my favorite poems, in case you can't tell. (laughs) Welcome to the world, everybody. Yeah, Mackenzie,
1: I admire you greatly for just taking your favorite things in the world and putting them out in front of us and then asking us to react to them. That is my personal nightmare. Yes, you're <laughs> welcome. You put yourself in a very emotionally vulnerable place. I don't f***ing care. For the sake of this podcast, and I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, Mackenzie Weaver is never a person who has been afraid of being known.
2: Actually, do you want to read a poem I hate but also love showing people? Sure. Okay. Here, it's called Easter Wings by George Herbert. You'll probably quickly see why I hate this poem.
0: Okay. Okay, there's a link for this one. Aha.
2: George Herbert was a 16th century author who was basically the precursor to Hallmark poems. Hallmark poems. He wrote all your Hallmark cards, folks.
1: Ah. This poem looks like the Black Widow emblem. He's done a clever little shape. But see, it's wings. No, it's not. No, it's not.
0: No, it's not. It's two hourglasses. (laughs) He wrote two hourglass stanzas. This isn't a reference. These are two literal hourglasses that he made with words.
2: He used words to, and he used them badly to turn them into two hourglass shapes, which if you turn sideways are supposed to be wings of an angel. <laughs> I f***ing hate George Herbert. Oh, my God. Can I do this one? Read it.
0: Lord, who createst man and wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, decaying more and more till he became most poor. With thee, oh, let me rise as large <laughs> harmoniously and sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me. My tender age <laughs> and sorrow <laughs> did begin, and still with sicknesses and shame, thou didst so punish sin that I became most thin. With thee let me combine and feel thy victory, for if I imp my wing on thine affliction, so advance the flight in me. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Wow.
2: Precursor to the Hallmark Christmas card. <laughs> Shaped like wings. I hate to interpret The final poem we're going to talk about before we go into a different topic. It's from the Exeter book. The Exeter book is from like England, early like 4th, 5th century, something like that. It's one of the earliest pieces of writing in the Western world, not the Eastern world because China and Japan's got that beat by a ton. Much older. Much older, much older. I'm going to read to you from it, Riddle 44, because the Exeter book is a book of riddles in poem form. Oh, the riddles. They're riddles. Oh, great. I want to read you one of my favorite ones. Okay. A curiosity hangs by the thigh of a man under its master's cloak. It is pierced through on the front. It is stiff and hard, and it has a good standing place. When the man pulls up his own robe above his knee, he means to poke with the head of that hanging thing, that familiar hole of matching length, which he has often filled before. What is it? Is that his dick? That's what it sounds like, ain't it? I feel like
1: this is a trap. I feel like it's trying to say it's a dick, but also, haha, it's not a dick, you weirdo.
0: Kit has the right of it. A cane, some sort of- A key. A key. Ah. Kit's got it. Kit's
2: got it. It's a key. And I love it because it just shows how people are still the same.
0: (laughs) Men have always been writing about their dicks.
2: Men have always been writing about their dicks, and people have always wanted people to guess dicks and riddles. It's a dick! It's a dick! The answer's a
0: dick! <laughs> the thing is that usually if you're talking about, like, any kind of metaphor in literature, particularly from a mm, uh, white man, it is
1: probably going to be about his dick! Yep. You can probably now tell why my favorite part of any RPG is the part where you can get around a in-game obstacle by solving a riddle correctly.
2: <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> it's a dick. Now, those were all my favorite poems. I want to talk about one of my favorite poets from my 15th through 17th century literature and poetry obsession, and it's a guy who is, is actually taught in school in literally the most boring way possible, and I don't think he should be, because he's awesome. His name is John Donne. I want you to know that in my notes, I have copious notes for this episode. In my, I've notes, seen
0: some of these notes. They're really good.
2: My notes for John Donne are: It's your boy John Donne. <laughs> <laughs> f- Get f- he sexy, sexy, sex. Let's baby. F- <laughs> Because that's John Donne in a nutshell.
0: I did see that part. It was very good.
2: <laughs> I think John Donne is an interesting topic to address solely because he's an old white guy who's written in Old English, so it comes across as hard to read and understand.
0: Because just as a reference point, Old English is an older version of the current form of the English language and is written
1: yeah, in- Yeah, Beowulf was written in Old English. We're talking early modern English here.
2: Yeah, we're talking like, I think it's technically called- Middle English? Middle English, Middle English, Yeah.
1: Right, Middle English is what Chaucer wrote it.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like late Middle English.
1: Shakespeare wrote early Modern English.
2: And John Donne was kind of right around Shakespeare time. So, it's so Old
0: English is something that you can't necessarily read in its original form super well.
1: It's more like German. This is before the Normans showed up and a bunch of French words got into the English language.
2: Uh-huh. Most people just kind of dismiss him as old, boring, white guy. John Dunn's life, his father was a priest in the Church of England. Not the Church of England. Whatever. uh, Whatever.
1: The Anglican Church?
2: He was in a church. In England? In England, in fact. Okay,
1: so Anglican, yeah. It was probably the Church of England. You can call it that.
2: Yeah, okay. And then his dad was like, John, you also have to become a priest. And John was like, I'd rather just f*** around. And his dad was like, no, you have to become a priest.
0: And then he was like, I don't want to live your life, dad. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but then he became a priest and just f***ed around anyway. So he's a sexy priest. Yeah, he's sexy priest.
1: (laughs) He's the priest from Fleabag.
2: Yeah, almost exactly. Speaking of which, the first poem of his we're going to read is called The Flea.
1: Oh, boy.
0: It all comes
2: back around. It all comes back around. This is the priest who fucks. This is the priest who fucks, and I want you to keep in mind as I read this. Mark but the flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest that this cannot be said A sin, nor shame, nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, And pampered swells with one blood made of two, And this, alas, is more than we would do. Oh, stay, three lives in one flea spare, Where we almost, nay more, than married are. This flea is you and I, And this our marriage bed and our marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, and you, where met, Encloistered in these living walls of jet, though use make you apt to kill me, let not that self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden hast thou since, purpled thy nail in blood of innocence? Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphst and sayest that thou fies not thyself nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honor when thou yields to me will waste as the flea's death took life from thee.
1: Well, that's deeply horny.
2: It's deeply horny.
0: I know the last one wasn't actually about a penis, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say this one is about penis. It's definitely <laughs> about penis. I'm pretty sure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure a penis <laughs> features prominently in this one.
2: Mark with the flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest that this cannot be said, a sin nor shame nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered, swells with one blood made or two, and thus, alas, is more than we would do. In this stanza, he's saying, Okay, look, 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 babe, look, look. (laughs) The flea sucked my blood and then it jumped over and it sucked your blood and so our fluids are already mingling and you're still a virgin right it's an indirect kiss we could mingle our fluids and you'd still be a virgin alright
1: alright come on babe <laughs> this, is, this is the longest way of saying just the tip that I've ever heard
0: <laughs> come on babe oh stay babe listen babe ba- listen, babe
2: listen babe 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 I swear babe babe just a tip babe. Oh, babe just the tip babe 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 look look it's just a little look, <laughs> look. babe 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 it's just fluids mingling we've already done that look at the flea look at it look at that flea look at babe, it babe it doesn't count it doesn't count babe. it doesn't count babe oh stay three lives and one flea spare where we almost nay more than married are this flea is you and i and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is though parents grudge and you were met and cloistered in these living walls of jet though use make you apt to kill me let not to that self murder added be and sacrilege three sins and killing three. At this point, the lady's like looking at John Dunn like, What the f are you talking about? And reaching over to smash the flea. Babe, please, please. And he's babe, like, babe, 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 no, no, babe. Listen, babe. babe, this babe. is my way of getting laid, babe, babe.
0: Babe, you don't wanna like you don't wanna you don't you don't wanna like hurt my feelings, do you? Yeah, babe, don't hurt my feelings, babe, babe. You're killing
2: you're murdering us here. You're murdering our relationship. You're, k- you're, you're killing kill- our chance at f You're it. killing me, babe. Babe, please. Please, babe. Hey, cruel and sudden, hast thou since purpled thy bl- nail and blood of innocence? Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphs and sayest that thou finds not thyself nor me weaker now. Tis true. Then learn how false fears be. Just so much honour than thou wield'st to me, will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. And here he turns to Sabre. She smashes the flea. And he's like, wow, that was that was that was cruel, but also kind of hot. <laughs> <laughs> you see how killing that flea took like no effort from you just imagine f***ing <laughs> you don't feel bad about crushing that flea right then why would you feel bad about us f***ing babe, babe. please let me just put my face between your legs girl babe please 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 I'm gonna eat you the fuck out babe
0: babe babe come on you don't have to do anything babe please babe please please I babe
2: swear. baby i love john dunn he's so horny <laughs> And that's The Flea, which is the first of the two poems I would say we are gonna read by John Donne. Oh, we got another one from this dude. Literally every poem you read by John Donne is horny, except for maybe the Holy Sonnet 10. What's the
1: Holy Sonnet 10 about? Holy Sonnets 1 through 9, though, are incredibly horny. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Holy Sonnet 10 is actually one I wasn't going to read, but it's called Death Be Not Proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. And it's basically saying that death, look, I'm a priest. After I die, I go to heaven. So death isn't really that scary, dude. And honestly,
0: I've already experienced a whole lot of little deaths along the way, so... Exactly.
2: So you're not that big of a deal, man. I'm not scared.
0: What is actual death but the big orgasm?
2: Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to read the ecstasy next, but I want to talk a little bit about the others. John Donne is most well known for Satire 3, which is where he kind of tells people to seek true religion. As a priest, it was kind of a huge deal. Because in it, he's like, the Church of England isn't the end all be all of everything, folks. Find a church that works for you and helps you out. Get right with Jesus. Just find the religion that works, man. In the poem Satire 3, he refers to one at the time where the four main Christianities as different sexy ladies.
1: Oh boy. Like. <laughs> John Dunn, can you not be horny for five minutes? No, he has
2: to be horny all the time. He refers to them as four different sexy ladies and he's like, whichever one you might find appeal and go for that lady. One of them you can divorce. Yeah. He actually had a very loving wife who didn't mind that he f***ed around.
0: A very understanding wife.
2: Probably because he also was like fine with her
0: f***ing around. A very we have an understanding wife.
2: He refers to the Catholic Church as the lady who dresses in jewels and extravagant gowns, but will love it if you go down on her. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Cool. I love John Donne. He's the horniest f***ing guy in the world. The canonization is another one of my favorite poems where he's like, for God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. And he's like arguing with people who are like the moralist of the period, which was most everybody.
1: Asking him to not be horny for five minutes.
2: Please, we are trying to eat dinner, John. Yeah. And he was like, for God's sake, hold thy tongue and let me love. chide my palsy or my gout. So basically, mock anything about me but the fact that I'm horny. Challenge accepted. <laughs> People were constantly telling him that lust and love were temporary. But no, his lust and love are canonized like the saints, is the canonization, basically. I
0: can believe this guy saying, like, no, I lust, I love, and they are both forever, and you're just going to have to deal with
2: it. Yeah, basically. I love him.
0: I am the Everhorned.
2: I am the Everhorned man. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always horny. So, the ecstasy is all about the old, what ecstasy basically means... Sex. Uh, means originally sex sex to him sex to him i think <laughs> definitely but ecstasy in the old form basically meant going beyond yourself and becoming one with god
1: oh mdma
2: yeah <laughs> in this case god is a woman
1: of course naturally of course
2: where like a pillow on a bed a pregnant bank swelled up to rest the violet's reclining head say we two one another's best Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast balm, which thence did spring. Our eye-beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double string. So to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. As twixt two equal armies fate suspends uncertain victory, our souls which to advance their state were gone out hung twixt her and me. And whilst our souls negotiate there, we like sepulchral statues lay, All day the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. If any so by love refined that he soul's language understood, and by good love we were grown all mind within convenient distance stood, he, though he know not which soul spake, because both meant both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far pure than he came. This ecstasy doth unperplex what said, and tell us what we love. We see by this it was not sex. We see we saw not what did move. But us, all severed souls, contain mixture of things they know not what. Love, these mixed souls, doth mix again, and make both one, each this and that. A single violent transplant, the strength, the color, and the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still, and multiplies. When love with one another too, in two souls, the abler soul which thence doth flow, the flex of loneliness controls, we then who are this now soul now know, of what we are composed and made. I'm going to pause there. Don't need to read the rest of
0: it. I I think it actually was sex. I think he was perhaps lying earlier.
2: (laughs) It starts out with them just holding hands and cuddling on a creek bed for a while, but does eventually become sex.
0: So he wrote some elaborate fanfic about him and God having sex. (laughs)
2: Kind of, and God was a woman. Right. The orgasm is the purest moment in the world, at which point you can connect to God. That's one way to go about it. He's also saying that at that point, everybody's soul becomes like combined and conjoined into God at that point. This poem, a lot of people hated when John Donne was around. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> because not only was it that sex helps you come closer to God, but it was also that Heck, come closer. Whenever you're fucking a lady, her soul joins with yours and becomes closer with God. Uh-huh. And people do not like that. Because the female orgasm is a myth? Both that and because men are supposed to be better than ladies, folks. But John Dunn was like, no, she's a babe. <laughs> Why should a babe not get as close to God as I do? <laughs> she's hot. Hot babes should get as close
1: she sort of walked backwards into egalitarianism by being horny (laughs) this is like maybe the most college boy shit i've ever heard (laughs) ha but girl hot though but girl hot though but girl hot though this is like the frat boy who is like of course lesbians are cool they like girls as much as i do (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly
2: oh bless and that's why I love John Donne. And that's why I think people should teach poetry like that. Because I found that a lot more entertaining to learn when I was in school than I found anything where somebody rambled about Ezra Pound-style shit. If people taught more poetry in the way of it's a frat boy trying to get laid, I would have gotten into poetry even earlier than seventh grade. Though I guess maybe don't talk about kids getting laid in in before 7th grade.
1: Yeah, no, not all of us were allowed to read Dragon Riders of Pern at 9 years old.
2: Yeah. (laughs) But at least teach kids things in an interesting way. I guess the problem is that you have
0: to figure out how to do that without just pulling up a chair, turning it backwards, and sitting down on it to rap with your students.
2: (laughs) That's true. Don't do that, please. Or do it if you're the cool teacher. If you're the cool teacher, you could get away with it. Oh, if you're the cool teacher in college, you sit on the desk. Yeah.
1: In my experience, the cool teachers were all the ones that encouraged us to argue with each other.
0: Yeah, there is also that.
1: Yeah. So it's like, okay, just read the poem and then say, what do you think that means? And let chaos reign.
0: Yeah. The cool teacher encourages chaos amongst the students and occasionally reels it back in when someone decides that it's an extensive metaphor for, I don't know, something they hate, which sometimes it might be. But other times it's like, let's just (laughs) reel this back in. Actually look at how the meter breaks down.
2: Let's describe how that might help support or dismiss your theory and stuff like
0: that. Uh huh. And anyway, do that for 45 minutes until the lecture's over.
2: And you basically don't have to teach too much. It's nice. But I feel like a lot of teachers didn't do that during school and that kind of turned off a lot of people. And make sure to read something other than The Raven or Shakespeare or Frost.
0: Or Really just expand your field of poetry beyond a whole bunch of dead white guys who are put in busts.
2: Unless you're teaching high school, at which point, feel free to teach John Dunn, men The high schoolers will love it. Speaking from experience. <laughs>
0: you mean people who are dead also got horny? And then suddenly they're like, oh, everything is suddenly more understandable. I'm also a teenager who is horny all the time.
2: Horned up, baby. I like how every single John Dunn poem is horny. Oh my god.
0: That's a lot. He must have been a lot at all times.
2: He looks like, if you find paintings of him, he looks like... Exactly what you'd expect him to look like, he looks like a horny bard, like in a d and d game,
1: oh yes, that is what I expected John Dunn to look
2: like. Oh, yep, yep, yep. He's every horny bard in every d and d game.
1: he's got the Van Dyke and everything. He's even got the shitty mustache.
2: oh yeah, I want to play that horny bard.
0: He absolutely looked at the painting in progress and said, "Now make my lips more plush and kissable. <laughs> I need everyone to know that I am DTF at all times.
2: Make me look hot.
1: Bard cleric multiclass. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the cleric was only because dad made him.
0: He
1: took one level of
0: cleric and then immediately <laughs> switched over to
2: bard. So that is my statement on poetry is good, actually. <laughs> and my attempt to prove it. Do you have like a rapid fire list of recommendations? So on top of the ones that I've already read aloud, I really like Rania Kapoor. She's another one of the poets that does a lot of videos of her reading. She's an amazing, amazing speaker. There was this one that went around Tumblr a while back called OCD by Neil Hilborn. That's also a really good one. Makes me cry every time I listen to it. I love Edwin Arlington Robinson. He is a great poet. In general, just kind of read around until you find stuff you like. I love George Tate. I love The Lonely Werewolf Girl. Also, Sharp Teeth, which is a book poem by Toby Barlow, which is all about werewolves. Dope. It's dope. I love that book. I love a lot of poetry I like. You can probably ask me about it.
1: Mackenzie, I need your opinion on something. Yes. I've heard people saying that Rupi Kaur is good, and I've heard people saying Rupi Kaur is bad. Is Rupi Kaur good or bad?
2: It kind of depends. I don't like it much, but I feel kind of like Rupee falls into the kind of performance sort of thing where part of it is like her drawing. She does. She does kind of wine mom poetry, basically, is in my opinion. Ah, uh,
1: Okay. Wine mom poetry. That explains why it's so divisive.
2: Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say I hate her works, but as an example, let me see if I can find the one that I see all the time.
0: Oh, right. These are the things that people will sometimes take quotes of people, like, saying random shit and just sort of reorganize it into one of these poems.
2: Yeah, but basically she's kind of like the wine mom of poetry. So not my thing, but I know a ton of people who'd really like it. So wait, what do you mean the wine mom of poetry? Like, it's the kind of poetry you could hang on a wall. Mm. Or the kind of poetry you could quote on your Instagram profile and sound deep. Ah, okay. I guess my opinion of RupiCore isn't so divisive in as much as not for me, but I can understand why people like it. If you have any questions about any poetry, folks, feel free to ping me on Twitter. I will happily talk about poetry for the next 35 years.
0: Mackenzie has a lot of opinions about poetry and will share them at the slightest provocation because she loves it.
2: Even if I haven't read it, I will read it and I will comment on it. I love Wallace Stevens. Wallace Stevens does good shit. I like a lot of Russian poets, Lermontov. Pushkin. I like a lot of modern poets. I love listening to them read one on the YouTubes.
0: This was a delight, Mackenzie. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. This was one of our highbrow episodes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we gotta get at least one in a year.
0: It's true. It's true. Gosh, I think that brings us to our final facts.
2: Kit, what's your final fact?
1: Data's cat poem slaps. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mac, what's your final fact? F*** <laughs> Ezra Pound. As much as you <laughs> James Joyce, f*** Ezra Pound... F*** him to hell, fuck him and his Nazi sympathies, but not the sexy kind. Not the sexy kind of. Not f- the John Donne kind. Not the John Dunn kind of fucking. I'm talking about the murder fucking. Oh, f Ezra Pound. Read poetry despite him and enjoy poetry solely despite Ezra Pound. That's what I do. Annie, what's your final fact?
0: Shell Silverstein may be terrifying, but that is no reason to discount his poetry. <laughs> perhaps the mystery of shell silverstein is greater because he is such a terrifying man who writes such children friendly <laughs> yeah. lines
2: read shell silverstein they're good
0: you can read it as an adult it's fine
2: yeah it's fine and it's fun to read
0: oh right right we do need to also mention that yes yes the tiger's out what's that f- uh, the tiger no no not tiger tiger burning bright i already memorized that oh the tiger is out
2: by like the seven-year-old or the six-year-old
0: the tiger he destroyed his cage yes yes the tiger is out <laughs> perhaps one of the greatest poems of the modern age thus far
2: a genius five-year-old
0: he's like six or something and he's just like I'm just really excited to meet the tiger being out yes yes Yes!
1: (laughs) every time I'm playing Planet Zoo and I forget to make the walls on the tiger enclosure tall enough I think about that poem (laughs) the reason poetry
0: is good you can have that all right well I think beyond the shadow of a doubt we've proven that poetry can be good actually wow Mackenzie you put in so much into this and this was really fun thank you so much for sharing all of that
2: absolutely thank you for listening to me read poetry for like an hour and a half
0: (laughs) (laughs) see I think that's gonna do it until our next episode which is actually going to be another episode that we have recorded way in advance but it's gonna be a really good one sort of jumping off of the poetry train (laughs) Be talking about a particular performance of a lot of pieces of poetry that were performed en masse for an audience. No, it's not a poetry reading.
2: We're talking about cats.
0: <laughs>
2: cats. Also by T. S. Eliot, who was close friends with Ezra Pound and James Joyce. Fuck you, F- T. S. Eliot. Yeah. Okay. But also, you know, cats.
0: Also cats. Also cats is really just an ex. Cats, though. Cats, though.
2: Cats, though.
0: Cats, though. We're also going to have on a guest to talk about cats. We're going to have Alan Sells on, who is an absolute delight
1: and also a musical theater nerd. So that should be a good time. It's going to be a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Any of you who don't like Earth musical theater episodes, it's going to be more of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a lot of really strong opinions about things that do not require strong opinions. (laughs) But if you don't like our musical theater
0: episodes, honestly, what are you doing here?
1: Why are you here if <laughs> you don't like our musical theater
2: episodes? Why are you still listening to us, exactly? At
0: some point, you're going to have to sit down and listen to me yell about Into the Woods a lot, and that's just going to be another experience.
2: At some point, I will probably talk about Starlight Express.
1: Cats the movie did Mungo Jerry and Tees are so
2: dirty. <laughs>
0: Hey, now, I know Mackenzie's going to want to fight about that one.
2: Because I prefer the movie version to the actual Broadway version.
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> F*** you, no.
2: F*** <laughs> you. 7-8 versus 4-4, four, four. fight. We can at least all agree that Rum Tugger needs to be way more fucky, and thus the Broadway version is better.
1: The Broadway version is therefore superior, except for the version where they decided that he was going to rap
2: yeah yeah no and that
1: lasted for like a year and a half
2: we're just gonna pretend and ignore that one and stick to the f**kiest rum tub dugger
1: y'all
0: folks i know i know i know we all have cat's material prepared fresh in our brains i do too and i have to live with this but we're not recording that one for a month you gotta hold on to this (laughs) i hope this has been a lovely little teaser for you guys (laughs) there's gonna be cat fights uh-huh, oh my uh-huh. god. and by that i mean fights about cats uh-huh. oh my god uh-huh, uh-huh. that was barely even a joke that wasn't even <laughs> intended as a play on word just fights there's gonna be fights at last we will fulfill the premise of our podcast fights are fun i like fights fights are fun <laughs> Man. anyway i will fight you comes out every five weeks you can find us wherever podcasts are downloaded or wherever you download podcasts i'm not really concerned about the passive voice here passive voice passive (laughs) voice It's been an English episode. You can find us on Twitter at Podcasts. You can also find us on Tumblr at crookedrussiancam.tumblr.com. I don't really worry about that one. Thanks, just sort of get cross-posted.
2: Yeah, it just kind of auto-updates.
0: If you want to find out more about this show, as well as our other shows, you can do that at our website, horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. If you want to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, wherever you find our podcast is always super helpful. Helps our metrics, helps us get discovered. Also, I get to collect nice comp that you give me about my friends and then tell them about it, which is always nice. If you want to support us with dollars, you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam. For a dollar a month, you can get early episodes of I Will Fight You at our $5 tier, which we've been really doing a lot more on lately, which is behind the scenes. You can actually get things like show notes from I Will Fight You, as well as a bunch of content from our other shows, Date Me Damn It and Gem Jammer, which are also both very good. And I think you would like if you like hearing us talk about this shit.
1: If you enjoyed us talking about how horny John Dunn is, you will like Jim Jammer.
0: <laughs> there is a lot of horny on that one.
2: Where well, we were all horny.
0: It's not all horny shit. Sometimes there's monster fights. Sometimes there's monster kissing.
2: Babe. 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 Babe.
0: Babe. 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 Let's fk. Roll initiative.
1: <laughs> yeah, me saying roll initiative is basically my way of saying stop being horny for five minutes. <laughs>
0: say that but you do also play all of the characters that people are horny for yeah <laughs> so you do actively participate in the horn
1: yeah unfortunately
0: aww <laughs> fine I guess we're ditching the monster romance arcs join us next time when we talk about cats 2019 and cats 1990 98. 98 yes we're doing both don't worry about it until then I'm Annie I'm Kit and I'm Mac and we have fought you
1: Lucas, I'm sorry for the uh, noises of my cat getting food out of her puzzle feeder in the background. This is a very small apartment. Don't apologize for Pam. Pam won't apologize. I frequently have to apologize for Pam. Pam
0: will never apologize. We have to apologize for not rewriting the world to suit Pam's needs.
2: Not an old white guy. In fact, a very young Chinese man. No, please don't make clicky noise. I don't think that was part of the poem.
0: No, I don't think this is the poem. That's
2: not part of the poem.
0: I'm not sure it's the poem. If it is the poem, I'm not getting
2: it. (laughs) It's not part of the poem, don't you (laughs) worry. It's just Hubert stepping on clicky things.
1: Could that not also be... A poem? Poetry. Lucas, I'm sorry for the chewing noises.
2: Lucas, I'm sorry for nothing.